Welcome to Season 5 of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast with Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve, the biggest sci-fi podcast in the galaxy. The adventure is just beginning here at the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, and we invite you to come aboard the Starship Tangent. We know you'll enjoy the conversation, the laughter, the banner back and forth, and most of all, friends who love hanging out to talk about all things science fiction. Set your phasers to fun. Here we go. Dreamers, that's what drives science fiction. Good day from the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Before we begin today's podcast, as always, we thank you, the listeners, for this and our many, many other podcasts, all available to you in living color on NBC. I, I mean, on the Trek Geeks website, where you this and other sci-fi podcasts are available. In addition, we are available on many of our your favorite listening platforms. Our Facebook page is open to you to enjoy, to post, and follow our podcasts, including our YouTube videos as well. So you, if you'd like, you can go to our email address, the big sci-fi podcast at gmail.com to send us your thoughts and comments. So many ways to enjoy the big sci-fi podcast. And now back to the show. Dreamers, we are so appreciative of them for they create the unreal universe that is science fiction. So dreamers like our own Adina, author of the Robot Galaxy book. Say hi, Adina. Hi, Adina. <laughs> hey, good. I get that joke. <laughs> our, our Brian, who also is, public, is a published author and the man of many who has helmed or is the helm of the USS The Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Say hello, Brian. Hey, it's Brian from Ohio. Hey, everybody. And Chris, who's going to film school so he can make his dreams come true alive on the bigger little screen. Say hello, Chris. Hey, everyone. It's Chris from Toronto, as we say. Yeah. And there is little old, and I mean old me. <laughs> I love to enjoy the fruits of the accomplishments of the dreamers. Today's guest is Jeffrey Morris, a dreamer that is making his dreams a reality. He is a writer, director, and founder of his own business, Future Dude Entertainment. I like that name, and it has no relationship to the future man from Enterprise, correct? Correct. We, <laughs> we are here to talk to Jeffrey about his projects, what got him into sci-fi, and what he hopes for the future of his business and sci-fi in general. So, good afternoon. Thank you for being on the show, Jeff. Hey, thanks a lot, you guys. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. I guess the first question I, I can ask for you is a very simple one, which is when did you first see a sci-fi film or TV show that you can remember, how it affected you, and what got you to this point? You know, it's funny. The very, very first sci-fi show I can remember watching was uh, Jerry Anderson's UFO with my father. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was about four years old. And, um, you know, I remember, uh, you know, I was a pretty different little kid. I, I was very interested in, um, I think it was about two and a half, not even three, when I started, um, uh, became aware of the Apollo missions or something. Oh, okay. and I was really, really into it. I thought it was really interesting that people were going to the moon and the moon was this thing up in the sky, right? But the idea <laughs> that there were people there, I was able to somehow cognate that concept, you know, and it was really interesting to me. So 
when I saw this show that took place in the future and it had people on the moon and it showed those sorts of things, I, I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. I obviously didn't understand what was going on in the show, a lot of it, but I, I thought it was really fascinating. The, the, uh, the cars and the, you know, the vehicles and all those sorts of elements and everything. So that's the very, very first sci-fi thing I can remember, mm-hmm. um, followed by lost in space, um, seeing that, you know, sort of in reruns, uh, in the afternoons. Um, and I do remember struggling with it. I, I like, I remember what, liking the first couple of episodes, but then thinking even as a small child, it got kind of silly to me and everything. I wanted something to be more real and everything. So, but those are kind of my first two early childhood memories of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when you said you were around three or so when the Apollo was that the Apollo 11 mission or later mission? No, so I was, I was, I was, uh, so I was born in 67, right? The end of 67. So I, uh, um, my, you know, it was really like around Apollo 14 that I became aware of it. 14, okay. 15, 16, you know? Um, and I, I really, you know, by the time they had the lunar Rover, you know, and mm. all the stuff that, that was when it got cool, you know, it was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> they've got a car up there, you know, it was, it was pretty, yeah. Brought to you by General Motors, who helped build it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you, got anybody else who was around at that time, but uh, I was a little obsessed with getting my hands on Tang, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, drink no, with I mean, the it, drink with the astronaut strength. That's yes, right. Drink with the astronaut strength. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So. I'm I'm going to say this as a compliment. Darn, you sure don't look it. I mean, oh. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was there. I watched the uh, Apollo 11 mission live on television, all 20, you know, th- further from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And I well, saw you're that. you a few years and, older than any of us, you know. Just a few, just <laughs> a few. But again, um, it, it was it was exciting to see the Apollo missions mm-hmm. it, happen. And yeah, you're right to realize that people landed on the moon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we were watching it on television. Right. It right. wasn't fabricated in a in a uh, unless some people do believe fabricated <laughs> in a soundstage, right. but this was real. I mean, you were seeing images from people hopping around on the surface of the moon. So yeah, I oh, can yeah. see how that impressed you as as a young child. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, it was uh, my my father was actually an aerospace engineer, and uh, and he uh, we'd actually wake up. You know, sometimes the transmissions would come late at night. Mm-hmm. And so he, I'd go to bed early, and he'd wake me up, and you know, I'd be in the middle of the night sitting on wow. the floor, you know, watching these astronauts bounce around, you know. So it was that was that was some cool stuff. So anyway, I think that I immediately from early childhood sort of connected what I would see as far as science fiction with what was going on with real space exploration. So mm-hmm. for me, it was always, you know, it was always about uh, dreaming about projecting it forward projecting it forward. That's that mm-hmm. was a big deal for me. So, you know, seeing seeing movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, a huge huge deal for me as a child. Um I didn't see it until it was on NBC. You know, it was a, it was on television obviously. Uh mm-hmm. the time. um but it you know, it felt like this tour of a future that I was going to grow up to live in and that was mm-hmm. uh, really 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 amazing stuff, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's as you think of it you go you were expecting you know, now, of course, where we are right now, you go, wait a minute. We didn't make it to 2001. We oh, didn't go to Jupiter. We didn't. <laughs> oh we didn't. Gosh. We didn't. What the heck? We I mean, I remember watching the check. You know, so really yeah. We started. It's like I literally was talking mm-hmm. to somebody just in the last couple of days about the idea of like, what if uh, 
I were to have asked myself back in 1975, like what I think the world, what I thought the world of 2023 was going to be like. And we're, we're off the mark by a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 So. But but we have come a long way technology wise. I mean, really. That's true. Can, that's true. Can, yeah. That's true. I, I would say personally, I would trade it. I'd rather have, uh, you know, city block size computers and have a spacefaring civilization that, you know, has solved mm. all kinds of problems. I think I'd rather, mm-hmm. I'd rather live in that world and not have smartphones. You know, yes. uh, you know what yeah. I mean? If I had yeah. to trade it, I think, I think, mm-hmm. it, I think that'd be the trade off. And so, but, uh, but let's get further into, you know, we'll start talking about some of these other things that yeah. were influences and yeah. We can, yeah. So just tell us a little bit about your books, your films, what, what influenced you? What, what did those type, which ones particular, well, you mentioned about some films that influenced you, any specific books or novels that you read that uh, really oh. got you? Absolutely. I was a big, uh, obviously, I loved Arthur C. Clarke books. Um, uh, Larry Niven, huge Larry Niven fan. Mm. Um, love his known universe stuff. Uh, also was a big fan of Ben Bova. Uh, a lot of his mm-hmm. books, he had awesome, awesome books and everything. As a matter of fact, uh, I was actually developing a, a actually a novel with him at one point. It, it, it unfortunately, he passed away, but it was uh, we were working on a, on a project. It was mm. really cool. But it, nice. was, it was really an honor to get to meet him because he was a huge hero of mine and everything, which is cool. So, um, but yeah, those are probably my three favorites in terms of, you know, authors that I really got into, mm. um, you know, when I was growing up, uh, definitely those three. Can, can I ask you, can we go back a little ways just like, cause we're talking about inspiration. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment or a season in your life when you remember, like, I think I want to be a filmmaker. I think I want to be an author. I want to kind of dive into this world. What what, what what kind of lit your fire to actually say I'm gonna I'm gonna pursue this? The funny thing is is that okay, so going back to that early childhood thing, I wanted to be an astronaut. Okay, cool. I, I really, really was was charging forward and that was gonna be my dream. I was gonna be an astronaut. And it was really interesting because obviously culturally, once we beat the Soviets, a lot of public interest it, it kind of waned. For, mm. for space exploration and going to the moon and certainly at the scale that which we were doing it. Right. And, you know, if you, if you look at a lot of the books and the, uh, the, the art and stuff, you know, NASA had plans, uh, projections for missions and they were going to, they were hoping to be on Mars by the 1980s, huh. you know, um, uh, let, let alone, you know, I mean, way beyond that, obviously space colonies, and the Gerard K O'Neill stuff and all these cool, you know, cool things that they had planned. And, and it was really interesting because I, as a kid, I would be talking to my friends and, and there was always this sort of reticence in a lot of them. They didn't understand why I liked it so much. It was very mm. interesting, right? And I mm. think that at the time they were sort of picking up on the vibe of the culture. There was sort of a lack of interest. And then Star Wars came along and I saw what little interest they might have had in space shift to that. Suddenly Star <laughs> Wars became future the future became space it became that but i remember when i first saw star wars when i was a kid i you know i was super excited for it i remember seeing the commercials and everything i was like oh this is gonna be awesome what is this you know and everything but of course i was trying to relate it to our reality right so i was like where is that when is that how does this work right (laughs) so then i'm sitting in the movie theater and the very first words on the screen are a long time ago in a galaxy far far away I, I was probably like a little dog. I was like, hmm, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know? It's like, what, what am I, wait, what, you know? Yeah. And so these are humans, but they're in another, wait, what, you know? So, but eventually I just went with it and it's like, okay, this is cool. This is cool. Um, 
But I watched my friends, as I was saying, they got into the action figures, they got into the story, they got into stuff. For me, I was like, well, how did they do that? That was mm. that was my thing, right? I was like, how did how did they make Tatooine? <laughs> how did they make the Death Star? How did they make those super cool spaceships? Because they look different than any other than 2001, right? There was nothing else that looked as good as that, right? I was like, yeah. how did they do it? So I started getting books and, and, you know, I got the art of star Wars and started trying to devour anything I could get. That was about the making of that film and films like it. And when I was about 11 years old, 11, 12 years old, I decided, you know, I want to grow up to make, I want to use the technology of star Wars to make science fiction movies, with hard sci-fi stuff. Hmm. Like, you know, and so instead of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I want to do in the new, near future in our solar system. Yeah, <laughs> Those are the yeah. stories what's, I want to tell, right? What's really interesting yeah. about that is, especially since you said your your father was an aerospace engineer, and yeah. that so the path that you took was more, how do we do that in film and make different film as opposed to, I mean, did your dad try to encourage you to go into engineering? Oh, no and question. Did you have those I, thoughts I, of how I, do I, I make things in real life? Yeah, if we fast forward um, to me being a senior in high school and I decided to go to film school, my parents were horrified <laughs> because they, you know, because in their minds, they really wanted me to go into engineering or I had, I had dabbled with the thought of becoming an architect, for example. That was one of the things mm -hmm. I thought about. So, you know, so I, I, I was an illustrator. I knew how to draw. I knew how to do, you know, uh, uh, I, I took drafting courses, all these things. Right. So like and I was pretty good at it. And my parents were like, why are you possible? Why are you throwing away a potential career that mm -hmm. where you could make good money, do this stuff to go off into some lofty nonsense film thing you know they didn't get it yeah, they yeah. Did not get it at all um i know a guy that was interested in trying to do that with music once uh so you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and and i i ask that um because i you might not know this but our audience uh who've listened to us before do i, I am in in aerospace and okay. so i'm also like you know, you and I, I mean, I'm a few couple years younger than you, not much, but a couple, but I had the mm -hmm. same thing is like, I'm watching what's on the screen and it's motivating me. But for me, it's motivating me. How do we do this in real life? So I went well, into actually engineering and yeah, science. So, so, so yeah. my way of getting to how do we do this in real life was figuring mm -hmm. out how to, if you go back and you look at something mm -hmm. like the original Star Trek there, you know, uh, in my background, I've, I've worked with like NASA, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for a mm -hmm. while. And, you know, one of the things that I constantly ran into scientists, engineers, physicists, people, and they would talk about the impetus for them going into this was watching Star Trek when they were a kid. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> yep. I mean, okay, okay. Yep. All right. 100%. Um, um, you know, they're, they're, right. They're, right. So there's all mm -hmm. these different, you know, um, uh, obviously science fiction motivates science reality. There's mm -hmm. no question. Right. 100%. It's like, 100%. Yes. So I think that what happened for me was. I saw a more direct line and like, you know, I, I kept thinking, okay, do I go become an engineer? Cause I, cause I realized being an astronaut, I have to be honest, it seemed like a dead end. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, it, and, I, and nothing against the space shuttle and all those missions and all those people who mm -hmm. went up there and the international space station, but it's not, it's nothing compared to what the dream was of being on the Mar on Mars and having these space colonies mm -hmm. and having a spacefaring civilization right. by now. Right. And, and what I thought was, I want to go down the path of telling those kind of stories and make mm. exciting action adventure stories that get people fired up about the realities in our possible mm -hmm. future. And so that's so to answer your question, Brian, that was that's what did it for me. Wow. That's that, amazing. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. 
Chris, yeah. do you have any questions for Jeff at this moment? Uh, I'm just so curious about, I guess, your first film and that that experience of of what that's like. Because I, you know, recently started film school, and a lot of my interest comes from just watching Star Trek, listening to the audio commentaries, and being like, "Ooh, how do they do that? How do they achieve this thing?" Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll have more questions when we get there. I think. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. So watch you. Um. Even though it's coming to an end, um, the your Kickstarter program. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. What you wish to achieve from it, and about your book. And what the project is. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, yeah. And, I mean, and, I think and, I think you know, going kind of to draw a through line from where where I was, you know, talking back when I was like a early teens um, to now. Uh, I. I've always been an avid science enthusiast, always. And I've always uh, studied science my entire life. It's always been important to me. I, I um, you know, probably my greatest hero is Carl Sagan. Mm. Uh, I saw his TV series Cosmos. I was aware of him before that, but when I saw Cosmos in 1980, um, to me, that's like the trajectory humanity should be on. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, using reason and our intellect to explore the, the the universe and try to come to an understanding of it and figure out what our place is in it and the beauty and majesty of it, right? That's that's what I feel like we should be here to do, you know? And so when I saw that, that was incredibly motivating for me. And I, you know, over the years, I've, I've tried to develop these hard science fiction stories. Um, and one of them, this one of my more recent stories is called Persephone. And it's about a... Um, an adventure to the nearest star. So going way back, I always thought Alpha Centauri, what was in what lost in space, it was a destination in lost in space, right? Right. It, it was yeah. something that it's the nearest star system. So it was like, wow, so that's 4.3 light years away. What that, you know, that's still 150,000 years with our current propulsion systems, but hey, we might be able to figure it out. Right. And, and it was like, I was like, I want to tell a story about going to Alpha Centauri, especially in uh, 2016 when we discovered that there was a uh, planet orbiting in the Goldilocks zone. If you guys are familiar with that term means. Mm, Absolutely. Okay. So in the Goldilocks zone of Proxima Centauri, which is the actual nearest star. So Alpha Centauri system has got three stars in it. Two of them are kind of sun-like. And then there's a third red dwarf, which is Proxima. And, And Proxima B orbits that. And it's a planet that they've determined is a little is rocky and a little larger than the Earth, and it potentially has an atmosphere. And I'm like, this is fascinating. The, the nearest star, the nearest star, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that that prompted me to want to tell a story about the how and why we would go there, but most importantly, what if, um, even though we've sent probes in advance, we we have this advanced colony that's being set up robotically. Then you've got the colonists showing up later, decades mm-hmm. later. And they get there and now their colony's in jeopardy and it's not working right and they don't understand. And they go down to the surface in an emergency mission before the colony ship arrives. And they discover there's something there that they didn't know was there. Hmm. And then the question starts to become, are we the invaders? <laughs> are we the mm-hmm. problem? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, you, you know, what, um, and, and, and the other thing I wanted to do was sort of deal with the dilemma of if you were born on board that ship, so you've got these young people who were born on the way. I thought that would be fascinating. And then you pair them with somebody who was in hibernation, who is awakened for this emergency. And now this, this person after 50 years and 
you know, uh, suspended animation is awake. And now they're with these young people who were born on board this ship. Totally different perspectives as they're right. thrown into this <laughs> circumstance. Can you imagine? I love it. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's that was that's the impetus for Persephone. That's what the story is all about. You know, so is this is it? I'm sorry, I can say is this a beginning, middle, and end story, or is it the begin? You know, the end is just the next step towards another story. Well, it's interesting. I, you know, it's funny. I've, I've had, I've started, started developing the story in 2017. And it's been through a lot of different iterations. I mean, it's, uh, I was partnered with some large companies that have since changed hands and it fell apart. And it, you know, I've had big actors like Michael Caine attached to it and, and other people I've, like, oh. it's gone up and down. COVID killed it. Things out, you know, <laughs> so it's, so I've rewritten it and rewritten it and rewritten it but earlier this year. I, I hit a draft of it that I really, really like. And one of the things that I did, Steve, was I jettisoned all the stuff that was the sequel stuff, the sequel mm. setup stuff. Okay. Because I realized that it didn't matter. Like, I was like, I need to tell the best story I can right now mm. with the story in front of me. Instead mm -hmm. of sitting here trying to lay all these breadcrumbs to what could be episode two and three of this thing, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I, did, I have written a sequel to it. Um, and, and, and I like the story a lot. It's a very, very different story. It's very, um, political and it has a really mm. surprising angle. Interesting. To it. Um, but the, uh, but the first story at its current, it could stand on its own 100%. And I would say that it's, it's my 2001. My goal is that this is the 2001 of the wow. 21st century. That's my, yeah, that's awesome. amazing. Awesome. so far <laughs> for the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> Dean, I yeah. think you had something to share. Well, I, I did. I, you know, that whole concept of you have a generation of people living on board a, a ship and they have to interact with these other folks. Uh, you know, one of the things, I guess, my one of my hobbies is I am very interested in linguistics and how language changes. I follow this mm -hmm. guy, his name is John McWhorter. He's kind of like, oh, I love John Neil, McWhorter. Yeah, I he's like John the Neil McWhorter. deGrasse yeah. Tyson of yeah. linguistics. Yeah, I, I and, love that. He's, he's awesome. Yeah. Yes. So like I'm now I'm thinking you got me thinking like so if you have this new generation of people, do they actually can they even effectively communicate with the folks who've been in hibernation? Because after um, they might have now have their own speaking style know, that's well, not. OK, they were they, they had parents who were who were from Earth, obviously. So there's and, a bridge. Yeah. yeah. And not only there's a, there's a bridge, but they also have a computer system on board the, the, the ship and AI mm -hmm. that I call Omni. And Omni mm -hmm. is very much about you know, teaching them and keeping them. So I, I would say that we don't get, they do have some slang and they do have mm -hmm. things that they say amongst themselves that kind of originated on the ship. Absolutely. Right. But, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's like th that idea feels like a novel, something that I had to put in the novel in a way, you know, and as sure. we go, you know, sure. you know it's, it, it, right. Because it's, it's um because at this, at the end of the, like I've got two hours and in this two hours, I really want to detail. You, you get to see about mm, three days of these people's lives, three to four days mm -hmm. of their lives. And in that that span, it's a very serious situation where 10,000 lives are at stake. And they literally, you know, don't know if they should move forward with their colony. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what this this whole situation ends up being. So. Yeah. So when you have an expansive, like a, a potentially very expansive, detailed situation happening for you, why? Or what defines a difference that you're going to choose to make something into a film versus into more of a series or TV show? 
How do you draw uh, the, well, the distinction well, I mean, there? One, one, I mean, obviously there's the cost factor. I mean, we, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, the thing that I've spent 85% of my time doing in the last 30 years of my life is, is raising money and maintaining a business, you know? So mm-hmm. there's an economic aspect of this and there's all of the, you know, the whole, like I've been pitching movies like the Martian to Hollywood since the nineties. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, the very first screenplay that I ever really solidly wrote uh, with my writing partner, Frederick Haugen and I, we wrote this story called Utopia, which is about the first colony on Mars and Ridley Scott optioned it. So Ridley Scott was going to make it, but he was going to make it a TV show. And through the mechanizations of Hollywood, the deal fell apart and his company fell apart and our deal went down the tubes with it. But I got that close in my first big script. Um, It told me me it was on the right path. So Ridley Scott, Mm -hmm. it was funny. So when he, he did The Martian, I was like, Man, you know, it's like obviously it's something <laughs> you've been thinking about for a that while. That could have you know? been me. Yes, yes. So, but uh, but you know, when I would pitch this stuff in Hollywood, the response I'd always get was, "Well, where are the guns?" And I'm where like, the, oh, yeah. "Are there guns on the lunar module?" I mean, it's like <laughs> they didn't go up there with laser cannons I, on. I, you know, they, they're hoping mm-hmm. for they're hoping for Armageddon with a gas. I was to gun. say that you beat me <laughs> to yeah, it. Yeah, no, there's, there's absolutely there's this thing of like, well, okay, they're on Mars. Like, like, do they? does something try to eat them? I'm like, no, there's nothing up there that's going to try to eat them that we know of. I mean, it's like, there's it. I mean, the environment itself is constantly trying to kill them mm-hmm. and we can tell a heck of a story around that. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand is that you don't need monsters and aliens in space out to get you space itself is an environment. We are not evolved to mm-hmm. exist in, you know, and, and One, it, right. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a challenge yeah. in and of so for me, I've wanted to tell these stories like it's just the same thing as going to Antarctica, right? Or, um, you know, what it was like for the first people who crossed the oceans, the challenges that they had. Um, that's the exact same situation that I see, you know, these stories could be about. That's the kind of stories mm-hmm. I want to tell. So mm-hmm. not only in space, but I've also got another project about an underwater city that deals with similar kind of circumstances. So, you know, for me, it's about, you know, finding ways to tell these sort of realistic adventure action adventure stories that have peril and drama but they don't have these sort of typical sci-fi tropes that we see mm-hmm. you know, right and i because for me personally i just have to be honest i'm tired of them it's like i when i watch uh you know the for example i watch this what ahsoka thing the star wars mm-hmm. movie. Oh, actually, I like the ahsoka, you know yeah. every single space battle they'd have in there i would just be like okay Right. I didn't feel anything. I didn't. I, I knew they'd make it. I knew it would be fine. I knew it was any big deal. Oh, we're going to have a lightsaber fight. Oh, OK. You know what I mean? It just and I don't mean to be negative. Right. It's just that right. it's it's gotten to a place where these these tropes are so overdone. They're so recycled at this point. Mm-hmm. And I and I just feel like we need to lean into you had a question, Steve, earlier. You said something about, you know, what do I want to see science fiction become in the future? I actually want to see it become science fiction. I actually want to see it become actual science fiction as opposed to, you know, fantasy, you know, fantasy sort of wrapped with these technological trappings, right? There's, there's, mm-hmm. you know, Star Wars is space fantasy. And even, yes, you know, agreed. It is, it is, it's a space fantasy. And it, and, and I think that people call it sci fi or science fiction because they've got robots in it, you know, they've got the droids or they've got these ships that look like they, but those ships wouldn't really fly. They, they really, really mm-hmm. wouldn't. None of them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and it's, thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be anti-Star Wars. I mean, no, like no, you're, you're right. But yeah. you can love it, or we can yeah. love it, 
And but yeah. it's also not fit the the definition, yeah. you know, that those right, are right. right. Just because right. we don't think it just because it doesn't necessarily fit the traditional or what, you know, hard science fiction definition doesn't mean we don't like it. It just means. Oh, exactly. Exactly. The I, I, issue. I, I, like <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love that. Yeah, movie. Yeah, so but, yeah, I think it's awesome. But but I guess the point is, is that it's still a fantasy. Right. And even, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny because like like I'm a big Star, I, I'm a Star Trek guy, kind of original series through Deep Space Nine. That's kind of my Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I, you know, I very much liked Next Generation. I think that Next Generation is about as good as television ever got in the genre. I really do. You won't have any it. arguments mm-hmm. here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, incredibly intelligent. <laughs> you're talking. You're talking made. to the the yeah, the choir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> and it's just it's brilliant and it's really well done. And one of the things that I will give them is. They have a lot of made up kind of gobbledygook physics, but they stick within the, the guardrails mm-hmm. of their made up physics. And that's mm-hmm. super cool. That's one of the things that I like about it. Consistency. Yeah. It's, there's a consistency yeah. in a in a in a sort of playbook and they and and they stick to it. To, yeah. for the most yeah. part, you know, and I think that's yeah. really, really cool. So I kind, I'm kind of off on a diatribe here, but you guys, get no, it. that's quite all right. We yeah. love it. Yeah. We love it. We we're, love a good diatribe. Diatribe, yeah, tangents, tangents, whatever. We love it. No, I, I yeah. will say this to you, Jeffrey. That's I've always said. Star Trek is science fiction that can become fact, mm-hmm. and we've seen it. There's certainly elements of it. I think that, you know, when you look at things like this, what Alcubierre drive, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but this Mexican physicist mm-hmm. who came up with, a, you know, equations that might be able to create a warp bubble, for example, mm-hmm. right? That's really fascinating stuff. Um, there have been exper- ex- experiments in the last uh, 18 months or so where it looks like some of these things might be possible. The problem is generating enough energy. I'm sure right. you, you know all about this stuff. But, you know, mm-hmm. generating enough energy to create these things and make it happen. But the point is, there's seeds of something there that right that could actually mm-hmm. become something. That's that's what I like about Star Trek. That's that's what I at least yeah. you know old Star Trek. You know I, that you're right. The the problem I have, the reason why I'm reticent about Star Trek kind of since 2009 is I feel like it's um, it's become Star Warsy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and yeah, I feel like I it's become that. very. I call it Star Wars damaged. You know, it's got a lot of <laughs> like they hit it with Star Wars. You know. And it, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like what, what Star Trek was for me, you know, and everything. So mm-hmm. um, and that part of that is that science and is those guardrails and is that, you know, that stuff, you know, so. But remember that Star Trek originally, originally what came about because they wanted to sell stories of the human condition. Absolutely. In a way that was easy to deliver and let's deliver it as science fiction. Yes, wrapped yeah. around morality stories oh, and so no on. Yes, That's... but even even original series had folks like Asimov, you know, on and off consulting writers. with them too. Yeah, and they had real, that too. Yeah, they had yeah. real science fiction writers who were involved and engaged with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And Steve, I couldn't agree more that uh, that Star Trek. You know, I, I was lucky to um, actually my underwater project, uh, Dorothy Fontana. Before she passed away, was going to we were we were working together a little bit on it. Oh my wow. god! Nice. I got to hang out That's with amazing. her and, and spend some time with her, which is wonderful. Awesome. We had several times we got together and spent time together, and she was absolutely one of my heroes. And um, you know, she told me a lot about working with Gene, and it was really interesting because you know one of those things is just you know this idea that he actually didn't really start out wanting to do a science fiction show at all. He wanted to talk about the 1960s. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah, and you're right. He he wrapped it in this. 23rd century cloth in order to make it palatable 
and get it past the network, you know? And so I think that's really fascinating. <laughs> and it stuff. worked. Yeah. And it worked. It yeah, sure absolutely. did. Thank goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so it's funny when I said the thing is, is I don't want to make it sound like I am looking to Star Trek for science. I actually, the thing I like about it the most was the fact that it actually did have those morality plays and it did have the cultural yeah. critiques mm-hmm. and the, the ability to sort of open your eyes to different ideas that, that you know, perhaps you hadn't thought about. Right. And I think, the difference between the old Star Trek stuff and the new Star Trek stuff is that um, I think the old Star Trek was much more, um, they brought you an idea and you had to figure it out <laughs> as opposed to they have an idea now and they take it in, you know, they, they're <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you know, hey, yeah. Consider I grew up, you know, watching Time Tunnel and, and mm-hmm. Lost in Space <laughs> and Voyage Upon the Sea and all that Mm-hmm. Irwin Allen Monster of the Week stuff, and then Star Trek appeared, and it was like, <gasps> Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah, this it is took intelligent. Itself and that's the same way we can transition into another subject, yeah. Mr. Jerry Anderson, mm-hmm. and what he brought to science fiction and and, and to television, mm-hmm. and your involvement in your own project with regards to Space 1999, The Eagle Has Landed, which you know, I do as I wrote jokingly wrote. Copyright Neil Neil Armstrong, nineteen sixty nine. You know he he coined that phrase. Well, and part of the reason why I use the term the eagle, why I named this documentary "The Eagles Landed," is because I feel that the okay. So let's go back to why am I doing a documentary? So um, so I'm doing um, a documentary that specifically focuses on a spaceship. So it's about there's a ship called the Eagle, mm-hmm. which was the primary mode of transport on the TV series Space nineteen ninety nine. And as a child watching that show, I think I was seven when it first came on in 75. And uh, I was immediately taken by it. Um, There were, it it was this moon base with an international crew with a lot of diversity in it, um, with, uh, uh, you know, they they were all scientists and intelligent and reasoning people. Um, And, you know, they, they were thrust into a really extreme albeit crazy situation, but it was getting to see them follow this and go on this journey. And this, uh, the spacecraft that they used, you know, as opposed to having a transport or something like that, every week they had this ship, the Eagle. Now, the thing that was so cool about the Eagle was if you looked at it, it had aspects that were specifically related to some of the NASA hardware. So you saw the same kind of reaction control thrusters that were on like the command and service module or the Mm. lunar module, right? And they Mm -hmm. look exactly the same. It's like, okay, so for me as a kid who was aware of the Apollo program, and then you see this TV show that takes place 25 years in the future, you think, man, that's the kind of hardware we could be flying around in. That's what, that's my future, right? So like Star Mm -hmm. Trek was, I was well aware that Star Trek was 300 years in the future, right? And, And I was watching those reruns. And honestly, I was pretty bummed because I wanted to see Earth in that show. You know, yeah, I wanted to yeah. see Earth in Star Trek. I wanted to, I wanted to go like, what's Earth like? What's it, you know? Yes, um, I agree. You know, mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's always fun. I just want to see how does everybody live? What's like the right, day to day like yeah. on Earth? What's what's that in we, the we future? Got, we got to change any bit. Next generation. Every once in a while, but oh yeah, yeah, no, and no, then no, that much. Yeah, next that's true. Did did get you there, right? Teeny next tiny gen bit. Yep. Deep Space Nine got us there some, but I think that what I, you know, as a small child watching Star Trek, the original series, it was like, but, but Earth, you know? Yeah. And and so, so Space 1999 being set in my lifetime, potentially, 
that was much more intriguing to me in a way. Mm-hmm. And so there's this spaceship. Now, now what's happened is, um, I think I first got my hands on one of those in, uh, th- there was Mattel had a, one of their best selling toys in 1976 was a version, a three foot version of that Eagle. Mm. And kids, they sold thousands and thousands of these things. Kids all around the world bought that they got them for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I was lucky. I got, I actually got two that year happened by accident. It was so cool. And, uh, and then they subsequently had die cast metal versions of them and mm-hmm. other, right. And then they had model kits. And what I've discovered is that there is a rabid fandom specifically around the spaceship. Oh, and it's not just about, it's not just about space 1999. There are people who like this ship who don't even like space 1999. And if you look <laughs> at like top 10 lists of like greatest space sci-fi spaceships of all time, the Eagle's almost always in the top three. It's right there wow. with the, the Enterprise and the Millennium Falcon. It was wow. usually the top three. Okay. okay. Um, so so for me, so so as I started looking into this, and suddenly I discovered there's like millions of people that are into it. Hmm. And I'm like, wow. Okay, so there's, there's even like a guy in Denmark who has constructed a 25-foot version of it this year. Oh, He's my gosh. Right now in his yard. Okay. And it's, (laughs) it's directly perfectly accurate. Like he's built this huge version of it. It's quarter scale. And then, um, you know, there's another guy I know who's in the Indiana. He pulled together a whole, um, fan page on Facebook and it's got tens of thousands of followers and they've now, they reissued model kits, got new model kits made and they've sold 50,000 model kits in the last five years. Right. And they're, they're selling more and more. It's not going down. Mm. So my point was, as, as a fan of this and a guy who collects them, you can see one right behind me that I've got. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, I, and, and I have more of them. I was like, why do I like this thing so much? And I started realizing you like it because you never got your future. The future never happened. And but you know, the other thing about it, it looked like it could work. Yeah. That's yeah, I mean, with the, yeah. with the rear propulsion system, as you said, with the thrusters, the, the landing gear, the, the, you know, the storage section in the middle and, and the, the um, um, command module or whatever up front, this looked like something that could be built. It felt like the descendants of the lunar module. That's what it felt yeah. like, right? It felt yeah. like if, if we're flying lunar modules, limbs right now, we're, we're going to be flying eagles in 25 years, right? That's what mm-hmm. it felt like. And so my point is, though, like, I really believe the eagle has come to epitomize this lost dream in a lot of ways for many people. And I know for me, I think that that this idea of we stopped walking on the moon in December of 1972, we haven't been back. You know, now we're talking about going back. We're working on it. You know, we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> it, it, it so, we, we, we have somebody here who is working on it right here. Adina's team. That's that's awesome. I, and I'm I'm a huge fan, especially of the. Um, you know, the public initiatives around this. I'm really, really excited right. by what the government's up to. And I can talk about that more later, but I think it's really, really exciting. And um, so my point is I kind of see Apollo at one end and Artemis at the other. And I see the Eagle in the middle. Mm-hmm. I see the Eagle is kind of keeping the dream alive for so many people. And, and it's funny because I don't think people even know it. And when I've asked like the folks I'm interviewing, it's like a light bulb goes off and they're like, Oh my gosh, I was a child. That's why I love this so much. I wanted to grow up and fly it. Now, so, we, we did yeah. interview Jamie Anderson earlier this year, and it was a joy to chat with him about his dad and all the different series and so on. Have you, how is Jamie's 
Anderson Entertainment, is that involved in the production of this or or how did you work out the uh, approval is, rights of all that? So I've got approval from ITV. Actually, uh, Anderson has a Anderson Entertainment actually has a, a license from ITV to do Space 1999 products. So, um, you know, we may do some some tie in stuff with them as via sub license at some point. But mm -hmm. we've worked directly with ITV, the network who owns okay. Space 1999. And like, for example, if you guys saw the trailer that I did, um, I, I not only did I get permission, uh, I licensed clips, I paid for the clips, I have a relationship. Mm. With them. They're completely aware of the project. As a matter of fact, they've even promoted the project. They like it that much. Um, Anderson Entertainment has promoted the project for me. Uh, Jamie Anderson's going to be in the documentary, as is also his associate, Chris Thompson, who did the uh, recent Moonbase Alpha technical manual, which is absolutely stunning piece of work. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm, you know, I've been embracing these people and bringing them in and making them part of it. I think it's really important. Um, the documentary currently we have, um, I have, uh, I'm doing an interview on December 5th with Charles Duke, who was the command module, I'm sorry, the lunar module pilot for Apollo 16 and one of the mm. three remaining moonwalkers of the 12 men who walked on the moon. I'm interviewing him at the Kennedy Space Center and they're pulling out all the stops for us for that. We're going to be doing that is wonderful. It's awesome. Um, you know, I've already shot with uh, Kevin Anderson, who's a noted author who's written a bunch of the Dune books and mm -hmm. Star Wars X-Files. Um, Kevin's a good friend of mine. He's co-author of Persephone novel um, with me. Um, we've done, uh, I've been to several events where there were collectors there who have, you know, enormous eight foot Eagles and <laughs> dozens, if not hundreds of these things of collections. I was in Calgary. They brought Eagles, people from all around the world. So you're going to see all this stuff in the documentary. And there, there are many women who are fans of this too, who collect them. It's, it's pretty crazy, you know? So, and then the, the, the greatest thing of it is that I'm, I'm actually rebuilding it. Um, I'm, I actually, we just started this week at Pinewood studios. We're building a, uh, uh, a new um, uh, replica of the interior of the ship. And I'm bringing wow. Nick Tate and some of the other actors from the That's original amazing. to uh, actually sit in it. And I'm going to hang out with them in it. And they'll be the first time they've been in this thing for 50 years. So it's pretty, pretty <laughs> cool. cool. So where when you get this idea to do a documentary, if you can even answer this question, because I'm assuming there's so many things that go into it, where do you start? Because I love the idea of making a documentary, but I feel like, okay, that's a huge thing you got to do. Well, I think that I think the number one thing, and and honestly, it's a it's a it's an evolving target. Is what's what's my core human story, right? What's the human story at the core of this? That's because that, one of the things that I've like I, I've had to say sometimes to some of the fans. Um, Adina, I don't know if you've ever heard this term, but that uh, I know a couple of guys at NASA who use this term. They talk, they call um, people rivet counters, and the the rivet counters are the people who know all the the technical details of everything down to you know. Mm -hmm. So words, they they would watch an episode of Next Generation. If there's an inconsistency between one episode and the next, they're complaining about it, right? They're like, well, the transporter doesn't work like that, and that other episode it did this and that, right? They have no idea how hard it is to tell those stories or make that stuff happen, right? Um, but one of the things that's happened is I've had like some of the fans who are really, really hardcore. And there are people who are obsessive about literally the details of the spaceship from 50 years ago. They've got the schematics and the plans and all this stuff. And these people will say to me, you know, why are you trying to tell all these stories about people? Why don't you just tell like, how did they make it? How they do the visual effects of it? What are the details of it? And mm. I'm like, well, because there's probably only about 400 people on earth who'd want to watch that. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean, right? And, we and would, we would, I think. <laughs> yeah, I definitely watch that. I'd probably watch it, right? But yeah, but, I, but I rec 
recognize, <laughs> but like, how can, you know, at the end of the day, my, my budget for this thing's over a million dollars. How do I justify a million dollars to make a documentary yeah. that uh, is going to appeal to 400 people? It's not going to work. I need to make something mm-hmm. that's going to appeal to millions of people. And that's going to be a story. So what I'm hoping is, so, so to answer your question, Christian, I'm trying to create something that's going to, my first thing is what's a human story here that could, that could be both surprising and exciting mm-hmm. and, uh, intriguing and 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 keep people's attention, right? While also serving those four hundred people too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. So that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The hard, that's the hard, you know, balance that I'm going through with this mm. is is you know uh, doing that. So once I kind of hit a story, which is to me, it's about people's obsession with this, you know, and and I think it's surprising. I think this is going to be a surprising story. Like, wait a minute, what? There was this show fifty years ago, and people still talk about it. That's interesting in and of itself. Then number mm-hmm. two, there's a spaceship on that show and people still buy toys of that and miniatures of it and all this stuff and do art of it and animations of it and blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Right. That's that's what I'm doing. That's yeah. I, I can tell you, I got a uh, email from Anderson Entertainment talking about selling Eagle. the Eagle at one hundred ninety nine dollars each yep. in various different shapes of the the medical one, the usual one it's it's a well if people weren't excited about it they wouldn't even put this up for sale Mm, and so that just happened like a week ago or something yeah 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 yeah. so no i'm telling you this is this is something that's got interest i've you know i've uh i was just talking to a buddy of mine who's an aerospace engineer he's like man did you know i think i became an aerospace engineer because of that show in that spaceship he said i watched as a kid that's what made me want to do it you know so i think i think there's a story here that's really really interesting and i'm super excited to tell it but at the end of the day it's not about the eagle it's about the fact that um there was the, the number one thing i want people to come away from is what what impact did that time period have on on a certain you know echelon of youth you right mm. this group of young people you know, no one talks about that. What was it like to be seven, you know, five through 15 years old during the, you know, the Apollo program? And if you were into it, what did it mean? Mm-hmm. To you, right. Yes, exactly. It, I tell you, it to me, it melted a lot because I built a model of the LEM and it sat on the TV while we were watching the lunar landing, yep. while the whole thing was going on. But what we didn't know, the reality was just how dangerous it was. Yes. How unbelievably successful they were and how they if 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 something had happened, if 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 Neil Armstrong didn't maneuver the lem correctly and land it as he did, mm-hmm. and it crashed into the earth, or mm-hmm. excuse me, into the moon. Yeah. What it would have done to the the whole moon program. Mm-hmm. It would have come to an end is it's as difficult as it was when challenger exploded it was as difficult it was when columbia went up and you know didn't make it home uh, mm-hmm. it, these are things that were never prepared for mm-hmm. well and they we, the public might not be prepared for but you know the folks who who work on these and the astronauts themselves they do a lot of i mean they know that this is a real possibility. It is very dangerous work that they're doing. You know, this mm-hmm. this is a real possibility. So so there's different levels of, of preparedness yeah. when you say that we're, you know, like I feel like there's a lot of preparation and preparedness that goes into now, of course, you you never want or hope, you know, but there is a lot of preparedness. I'm sorry, I just had to had a 
you're, you're no, absolutely. no, I, I pre- appreciate. Yeah, but I think that I think the public doesn't know that, right? No, it, that that's right, right. And yeah. that's and a big part and, of yeah. Oh, I was gonna say the public doesn't know that uh, the, one of the reasons why today these things are so expensive is because you know NASA is very risk adverse. They care deeply about the health of the astronauts and the safety, you know, health and safety of the astronauts and the people involved, and so. Mm-hmm what that means for us contractors and what we have to go through to demonstrate that what we're building is safe. Mm-hmm. It's expensive. That's what makes this stuff also very expensive that, and yeah, mm-hmm. people, I don't think absolutely really understand or appreciate. Absolutely. Um, and there's also, I think there's just the political angle too, of just, if you start sending people up and they keep dying, um, mm-hmm. you already have a public that doesn't understand the benefits yeah. of this or what they're doing, you, you're going to lose your money. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. You're going to lose sure. your money. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, anyway, um, I hope I answered your question, question, Christian, you know? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Because I mean, like learning about documentaries, it's like always, okay, what's the, yeah, you're going to talk about this specific topic, but what's the, what's the story? What does it, right. what's the yeah. greater meaning of it? So I, yeah, that's very I, helpful. I'm, you know, I'm going to say straight up, they're going to be people who are, are those hardcore Eagle guys who are going to be like, man, I just want to see something about the Eagle. Why am I seeing this stuff about this guy's life or these people's mm-hmm. lives? Because to me, that's what's going to make this actually interesting to a broader audience. And honestly, at the end of the day, it's back to what Steve was talking about with the original Star Trek, right? It's about the people. It's about that's humanity, exactly. right? And so I'm just using this technological toy to be something that's a jump off point to talk about a human thing, you know? And, and, and even when I talk about my interest in the space program, at the end of the day, it's not about the space program. It's about the fact that I saw that as being a key element in the evolution and development and potential of our species. That's, that's what the space program epitomizes for me, if that makes sense, you know? Mm -hmm that's a big part of what this is all about. It's like humans reaching their potential, humans pushing the boundaries, becoming better, um, you know, finding ways to evolve and to uh, also to look back on our own planet and understand how fragile and, and how important it is, you know, so all that's a big part of what all that's about. So that's what this documentary is going to do. I'll jump in. I'm, yeah. I, I see like as envisioning, from of course way outside of it but wouldn't it be cool also if this project really brings new fans in new you know not just to the space 19 eagle all that stuff but to sci-fi in general um to understand what sci-fi is about and about the human story aspect of it you know because that for me honestly uh, you know occasionally i've been poked fun at by my buddies about why I like Star Trek so much more than Star Wars. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Star Wars. I'll mm-hmm. watch it anytime that someone wants to watch it. I'm there. Okay. But uh, they see Star Trek is just this kind of cleaner, slicker version of an outer space story. And I'm like, you have no idea. And when I try to explain mm-hmm. the depthness of it and yeah. this, the human stories yep. they're actually trying to tell yep. uh, and how deep it is, uh, I get laughed out of the room sometimes because, uh, you know, first of all, they just they'd rather see all the shoot 'em up and which is fine. It's fun, you know, um, but to to tell the real human stories mm-hmm. um, is so important. And it's one reason why I like science fiction. We can. We can go there. We can get real deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't know what they're missing. This, yeah, 
I agree. Yeah. Thank you, Adina. I actually agree. <laughs> actually agree. And and the the you know the one the one disappointment I have with science fiction to some degree, which I know makes me different than, some, than many people, is like um, I I wish more of it. So look, I mean, we live literally in a science fiction world, right? Just just literally, like it, it. If you go back in time, at some point, yeah, almost everything we do at some point was some you know, scientific invention, development, some, you know, an idea, right? What we're doing literally right now, what we're doing right now, right? <laughs> is, right? Is, is, is sci-fi to somebody at some point in the past, right? Those headphones you gentlemen are wearing, right? Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Microphone, right? It was all this. This is what I tell people all the time. <laughs> watching a Pixar documentary, and I'm like, Pixar seems like science fiction. I know that it's real. I know that people can animate movies, but I'm like, this is all unbelievable to me. In that, in that respect. But then so this there's, is what I there's... tell people all the time. If you like had told someone a hundred years ago that we would be sitting here, we're on various parts of the planet. Yep. We're having this real time face to face, you know, that would have been like completely inconceivable. It wasn't conceivable yeah, no. for most of human history. Now, or, or you... you know, the, the sad part and uh -huh. you guys don't agree with me on this, but here's the thing. I, I think along with what you just said, Adina, is that when a lot of times when people would would talk about those ideas like you know in the future they could do this mm -hmm. they would imagine that they would take the next step and they'd say so because they do that they're like more enlightened <laughs> they're, they're, they're smarter they're like, <laughs> that's so funny they're, yeah they're they're much better people because they can do that right they, uh, they, mm -hmm. yeah and that's the part that's that i think is somehow missing for us is that mm -hmm peace right yeah and that's what i want to try i'm just i'm want to figure it out desperately because i feel like the world if we don't figure this out we have a lot of challenges coming up and if we don't yeah. figure this yeah. out they the challenges could outpace us the way it's going you know it's like but, it, yeah, yeah. Go that's ahead. the magic of the when you know when we talk about the star trek future is we're not always talking about the technology or the fact that they're exploring space we are talking about just how they seem to have been you know there it's a, a post-scarcity society People it seem to generally mm -hmm. have it together in a way that we clearly do not yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you like, like a Barkley is an, is, is, is Lieutenant Barkley is an anomaly. Mm -hmm. I love you him. Know what I mean? right? He's an Lieutenant yeah. Broccoli. But you know what I mean? He's an anomaly. It's like there's, yeah. there's, there's a, um, you know, and, and and you know, one of the things that I've I've watched you see science fiction doing. If you go back, there was this wonderful thing that used to be in science fiction where. You, you would take a group of people who were the it, literally what it took to be an astronaut, to be an engineer. You had to be the best. You actually had mm -hmm. to have it together. You couldn't be like, I'm not saying that there wasn't somebody who might have had a, a side alcohol problem or marital issues. Or right. Whatever, right. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Look at sci fi stuff now. That's front. That's who these people are. Right. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know. <laughs> He's a he's a, he's an al alcoholic with tremendous sex addiction issues. But he's got to leave this mission. It's like I, I don't get it. And, it, and it's like I, I love the fact that if you go back and you look at these these people had it together and then you took people who had it together and you gave them situations that challenge their humanity or challenge yeah, their yeah. skill set. That's mm -hmm. what it was. Right. Like when I look back at even even shows like Battlestar Galactica back in the 70s. The, that trio of those pilots, you know, Apollo, he had it together. Starbuck, yeah, he was a womanizer or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, he had it. You know what I mean? These guys had it together. I feel like we need that again, like to create mm -hmm. these like cool people who are role models who like have it together. And then you 
obviously throw things at them. You make it difficult. You make give them challenges because that's part of life. But I think we've got this misnomer that, you know, that like like with the except you remember the the the, the female astronaut who like back, I don't know, whenever whatever it was who like Oh she yeah, was, she was yep. She was like I know what you're talking about. Wore the diaper and drove halfway uh-huh. across also that is such an anomaly that is mm-hmm. such an anomaly there's just th- these people that's not who they are you know typically mm-hmm. you know? so I, yep. I just feel like it, it's actually a lack of imagination it's funny people say what's more imaginative mm-hmm. I actually think it's a lack of imagination I think and mm-hmm. I think that also um when you look at I, I think that for everyday people, a lot of everyday people are turned off by aliens in these shows. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think with that, like, like I, I've just done it. I've watched sci-fi through the eyes of people who don't like it. It's something I do a lot. And I, and I try to see mm. it through their eyes and they and so they'll like watch Star Trek, like if Star Trek was all people, like we're all on a ship and it's all humans and they're wearing these uniforms or whatever people might go what's that uniform why are they wearing that it's like well it's this mm-hmm. thing's called starfleet okay got it <laughs> but then it's like well who's that blue guy <laughs> you know <laughs> right or like why is that person's forehead like that you know what i mean right it's, right and i think that 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 becomes a leap that a lot of everyday people can't get past mm, you know and part of why yeah. mm-hmm. sci-fi is being nerdy or or this thing that's for like a fringe group where yeah. I think it could be brought more into the mainstream if we just told more stories about just people, you know, just like the, mm-hmm. the people. I think that's one of the strengths of the show, The Expanse. I think that was really, you know, they they obviously had this one element that was kind of alien, the proto-molecule. But aside from that, it was just people. Was you know, I think, good. you know what I mean? Um, I think that was one of the edicts of the, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. It was like, we're not going to bring any aliens into this thing. And I think that's part of why it was so acclaimed and had so many people that liked it, mm-hmm. you know, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, that's just some of the thoughts I have. I I guess the the kind of science fiction, the kind of documentaries, the kind of work I'm doing, it's very important to me that this reaches a mass audience that typically doesn't always access science fiction while still mm-hmm. bringing along all the fans who love science fiction because I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 So can I ask you a little bit about your company? Sure. Future Dude. Yes, Future Dude. Did, you promised to tell how, us a name. How did you how did you come <laughs> up with a name? What is the mission statement if you want to say about the company mm-hmm. what are what are you wanting to do with it i mean mm-hmm. it because because and we we did talk to one time a, a guy out here on the west coast who has his own production house we mm-hmm. learned about why he started his business and so on so you're 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 a businessman you've yep. got a company you've got That's employees yep. tell us a little bit about it if you don't mind sure um so I've always been, I haven't been on anyone else's payroll since like 1991. You know, I started my first business way back then. And uh, I started out originally doing, um, I knew I wanted to get into feature films, but I started out doing uh, more music videos and corporate type stuff. And um, I, I'm based in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And part of why I came here uh, after college, I, I wanted to focus on, um, I, I'm also a musician and everything. So I I was interested in, in working with the uh, the Minneapolis sound thing that was going on at the time, Prince mm. and a lot of the stuff that was going on. It was a big deal. And not only did you have what was happening with Prince and then he just built Paisley Park studio. And, um, but there were movies being made here. The Coen brothers are from here. There were a lot of, there was a lot happening in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I think in a lot of ways, if the state had gotten more involved and passed like good tax credits, it, I don't know if you guys are aware, but like in, um, um, what is it in, uh, what Vancouver? Georgia? 
Yeah, no, okay, Vancouver. Okay. And, right. Yeah, you're right. It's it's Georgian now, right? Mm-hmm. But for a long time, it's like Vancouver and Toronto, because like in Canada, they started having these just amazing tax credits, right? I Minneapolis mm-hmm. was Minnesota was heading in that direction, actually. Um, so anyway, I based my company here. My plan was to get things up and running and to, to do this. And um, you know, I, I, I produced, I started writing screenplays on the side. I started doing, um, you know, I was doing documentaries. I work with Delta airlines. Um, I did, I got to direct a big series of spots with Chuck Yeager, which was very interesting. He, he was, he was, that must've been exciting to have met that cool. gentleman. Really interesting because, um, <laughs> you know, I was, uh, I was a huge fan of the right stuff. I'd read the book. I liked the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting a chance to work and so I'm directing Chuck Yeager, right? That thing. It was really <laughs> interesting experience because I walk on the stage and I'm actually, I walk out, it's on the tarmac at, at, at the airport. We're, we're going to shoot the scene. We have like 747s lined up and all the pilots are there and the pilots all, they, they introduced me as this is the director. And all the pilots shook my hand. They're super excited. And then Chuck Yeager looks at me, looks me up and down and walks away. And uh, yeah, and it turned out that he was this really, really big racist. He was a big racist. Oh my goodness! I did not know. Yeah, he didn't like the idea of a black director. He was that wasn't his thing. But um, it was interesting because as the day went on, I would never back down. I just wouldn't back down, and I kept pushing him, and I kept directing (laughs) him. And by the time the day was over, he was talking to me, and we were you know, hanging out, he gave me an autograph, we'd sit, you know, stuff. And um, I just realized it was just one of these, you know, it's one of these things, like, especially when I look at what's going on nowadays and and the level of sensitivity so many people have, they would have lost their minds back, but they couldn't handle it. And Mm -hmm. like, I just Mm -hmm. stood my ground. I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I didn't do anything wrong by being right. Right. Um, He respected the man, not the color of the man. He respected who you were. I think that that might've changed, you know, pushed him a little bit. You know, which was which was interesting. So, mm-hmm. but that was a notable experience early in my career. Then I, um, uh, I got pulled into educational stuff, and I, I kept hmm. working with area schools, and I, I ended up uh, uh, teaching with the school of management here about entrepreneurship at the University of Minnesota. I started working with local schools and doing some science outreach stuff, and people were like, you know, this is really cool. You should keep doing this. So I ended up uh, creating a nonprofit, five hundred one c three, called Project Universe, that was about bringing space and astronomy and sciences to um, everyday kids, everyday people. Mm. And uh, I had a project that I wanted to show NASA and I went and met with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, some people there. And they were like, this is really cool. Do you want to work for us? So that became <laughs> the beginning. And my my company became a contractor with JPL. Wow. And NASA. Oh, cool. I worked with them for about 10 years and ended up having Buzz Aldrin as a client and all kinds of stuff happened during that time. That said, I was always still by I was still on the, you know, the the idea of making films and doing mm. sci-fi stuff. And uh, so I got to about 2010 and I decided I was going to um, create a company that pulled together my interests in science and education with my filmmaking background and my entrepreneurship. And so that's what this company is. And so the the company's actual official name is Morris Future Works. Um, but but I. Uh, I, I was going around, I was meeting all these cool people. Some of the actors, like I, I was good friends with Michelle Nichols, for example. And, um, and I would, you know, I, w- I would hang out with these people from NASA or I, or I was at the SETI Institute with Seth Shostak and all these people. Right. And I kept meeting all these cool people. And I was like, I should do a blog about all this stuff that's happening. So mm-hmm. I was trying to find up a cool name for the blog. 
And I was playing around with these different, you know, and I was thinking about my love of Carl Sagan. And then I was thinking about like, who's really popularizing science right now. And I thought about uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. And, uh, and I was thinking about how that kind of brings it down. It's folksy. It's everyday people. So I came up with this mm-hmm. word combination of future dude. And I was like, that's because I was like, you know, you aren't just into space. You're like into, you know, cool space, stuff, oceanography and engineering mm-hmm. and all the different things. But it's really about the future and it's really about the human future. So how about future dude? So I created this blog and within, I don't know, um, three months, I had like 50,000 hits on the blog. Wow. Mm. It was really cool. And then I, I, I even went to the year later. I went to Washington, D.C. to present this graphic novel I created about a mission to the planet Venus. And uh, I'm there and I'm walking through this big symposium and this guy yells, hey, it's that future dude guy. I was like, what? It was actually actually a little scary. Um, But but I was realized I was starting to get some inroads and people were noticing it. And so um, in 2013, I decided to rename the company. Um, around the block. And so that's what it became future mm, entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's uh people like it. It's it's uh it's it's got a kind of um uh, you know it's I'm just trying to bring it down to earth. I want it to right. like, not take itself too seriously, mm-hmm. right? You know, and make it so that people feel like it's accessible. And then once I get them in, then I'm gonna hit them with the <laughs> with the stuff I've been talking <laughs> to you guys about. The, the, what you really want to do, yeah. Yeah. do, yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's the name of that. So so since 2013, we've, um, you know, I have a really, really uh, great uh, group of investors working with me and we've developed uh, several projects. We've done something called Parallel Man, which is about parallel universes. And uh, I did a graphic novel of that. Um, and we did an animated short, which starred John Cho and uh, mm. the late Lance Reddick and Ming-Na Wen. And then uh, simultaneously, I did an underwater adventure called Oceanus, which is about the uh, an underwater city in the Pacific and a disaster that happens, a global disaster and which isolates the underwater city. And uh, I did both of those. And, um, and then, you know, so then I've, I've, I've done, I don't know, several comic book series. Um, you know, uh, the, these films have been developing feature films, that sort of thing. And this now this documentary. So that's, it's been a, an interesting journey. You know, we've been really close to launching our our big features several times, but stuff has just gotten in the way. And it's just, you know, mm-hmm. but I but I, I've had enough positive feedback on the work that I'm doing. Like even these shorts that I did a few years back, we're just getting ready to get major distribution for them. They're going to actually be on Roku and uh, uh, Freebie and Tubi soon. Nice. And these are cool. these are things I made years ago. People still are like, these are awesome. So what I'm hoping is I'll finally get some traction and be able mm-hmm. to turn them something huge and i've i've got so much stuff i could show you guys i mean like we've we've spent millions of dollars developing these ips we're just ready to go we just have to you know get the right track and it'll yeah so i think that this documentary will be the thing that kind of opens the floodgates and it's our kind of our coming out party in a way so do you sleep between three and four a.m and that's about (laughs) it or what you know it's funny to say that it's sleep has always been a challenge um uh uh, you know but it seems like your mind is always going for the like you know it's what i'm working on and what's the next thing i want to do you know yeah it it is it is and one of the things that's been you know honestly it's been a bit disheartening because i i get pretty far in some of this stuff and I have it so well realized like, and, and, you know, it's just, I think, I think first off science fiction is really difficult to do because mm-hmm. you're, the budgets aren't small, you know, Christian, you were asking <laughs> movies, right? One of the hard parts with sci-fi, it's like, it's, it's different. I always joke that like, if I wanted to make a boxing movie, I could knock that out in a week because I could just go find a local gym and a local place that has a box, you know what I mean? And actors, <laughs> you know, I, I could make yeah. that 
Well, know, welcome, it, welcome to Rocky. Right, I could make exactly how they made it. Exactly, I could make Rocky. I could make a romance story easily. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to doing something like science fiction, when especially something like a film like a Persephone or Oceanus, Mm -hmm. where we're having to make you know costumes and sets and props, and you're 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 building the future. It doesn't just Mm -hmm. hit the store. You got to build it from scratch. And so um, that's been um, sometimes prohibitive, right? You know, because you um, and especially. Uh, you know, I try to create stuff that's really, really good and memorable and different. And so, um, and the budgets that I'm looking for are not crazy. I, I think, you know, most of my films will, you know, I can make them for under $50 million, under $25 million, that sort of thing. It's not about having hundred million, 200 million. It's more about having um, Hollywood has become really reticent. Everything is so star driven and mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. it's in the movie. Like I have this film right now and I've, I've attached actors like Ming-Na Wen and Isai Morales and, and, and I'll, I'll pitch it around Hollywood and they're like, yeah, it's just not, those aren't big enough names. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. crazy. It's crazy, man. It's wow. like, it, and, I mean, and, that's ridiculous. But even that's ridiculous. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I know. And they won't even Come read on. the script. Yeah. They literally won't even read the script. Like they'll just go, who's in it? And, and, and I've, I had big name producers attached. And, and those big name producers will go out and pitch my projects and they go, well, okay, who's attached to it. And so that's part of why you're seeing all these things on cable that have the same actors in them over and over and over again, because they don't, they're very reticent to take risks. And they also are reticent to take risks on a new IP. That's another thing. Mm-hmm. Like this film yeah. recently, Creator, that was really hard to get made. Which you know, movie was this? The Creator. It was the uh, Creator. Yeah. Which, yeah, how yeah, long yeah. did that last in the theater? Yeah, and and it you know I don't think it even crossed 100 million, but it was um, it was close. I think it was around the last time I looked, it was around 95 million. But it um, but it was made for 80 million, you know. But then you have these movies like this, these Marvel films that are being made. That 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 movie, The Marvels, was just made for 250 million dollar budget, or like the Indiana Jones film, over 300 mm-hmm. million dollars for the budget. Of that yeah. film. It's like it's it's kind of obscene, you know, when you think about it, like this is the gross domestic product of entire countries, <laughs> right. movie, you know, now, are, <laughs> do you, do you run into a problem where you pitch an idea and you say, this is a self-contained, does the studio, like, do you find studios are like, well, if you have, if you're making it a series, we're more likely to be interested. No. Um, what they're, what the, uh, here, I'll tell you straight up. It's, 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 um, who's in it. Uh, does it have the familiar tropes? Mm-hmm. Um, is it based on IP that already exists? So, in other words, was this a best-selling novel? Was this a was this a very successful graphic novel? Was this something that people have heard of already? That's mm. first. Wow. That's first, right. Okay. And, and then, so then, if you don't have that, then it's like, okay, you're telling me you don't have any of those things. So, is Brad Pitt attached? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, you know what I mean? So, and then, and then it's actually literally getting to a place where even like if you're Brad Pitt now, it's getting, it's not that easy just because you're Brad Pitt. You can't just go and get things made like you, you could have 10 years ago. Things Unless have you have your own production company like Brad right, Pitt has right, right. another like that, then, then you can kind of force the issue. You can force it and you, maybe you're going to get the financing because you are Brad Pitt or whatever, right. and you can do these things. But well, I think that some of the stuff is put up your own money is, is one of the deals, but I, here's where I am. It's like, I've actually found that there's a lot more um, openness 
to my approach to science fiction in Europe, for example, like mm. I'm over there pitching like in England and stuff like people are like, this is awesome. They're, you know, like I, I have, you know, potential financiers. Like I'm at, I'm literally Persephone right now. I, I have a financier out of Italy and, and the UK who's very interested in producing it, you know? Mm. So, and then I, I, I was just over in uh, Europe back in February and I, I went to toured studios in Munich and in Warsaw and, these people are like, this is fantastic. Let's get this made, you know? But if I go mm -hmm. pitching it in Hollywood, the first question is who's in it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy guys. Mm. I, I'm really this up. It is, it is very, very frustrating, you know? So yeah. um, that's been a big part of the challenge for this. So I don't want to Christian, I want to, you know, dissuade you from going down the path of being a filmmaker <laughs> and everything. But I, I would say this, um, if you get the opportunity to actually take something and make it all the way, make it all the way. Don't, don't, you know, mm. way to make, even if you made something for a hundred thousand dollars and made the whole thing and it's a completed project, that's going to mean a lot more than being out there pitching ideas because it's not because you have a good idea that something gets greenlit right now. It's because you know, somebody <laughs> because right, of relationships. Somebody, yeah. It's mm -hmm. all relationships. Yeah. That's what's green lighting projects. So, mm. yeah. Okay. Wow. It's no, wow. yeah. yeah. A lot to think about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so we're gonna we're gonna redo the to... phrase. The new phrase is "comedy is hard, making films is even harder." Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. It's definitely and, not easy. And in trying to do this thing of sort of realistic hard sci-fi and stuff like that, it's 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 just, um, it's it's not something that people even understand enough to get their brains around it quickly. You know, and thing. and the interesting thing is. We're always, you know, you look at the Marvel films and, okay, this was big. Now it's got to be bigger. Now it's going to be even bigger and bigger. And the threat's got to be gianter. And so the special effects get more expensive and the production and the whole thing. And if it flops, you know, then, wow. Well, well, well bear in mind that that each film usually has the, the print and advertising, bar, the marketing budget is is oftentimes too, you know, um, two to three times the actual budget of the yes. film itself, right? Mm. So when you had Indiana Jones that was made for $300 million, that means that they had to make almost a billion dollars to just break even, just to break even. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. A billion dollars? I mean, it's like that, you know, that's, that's crazy. crazy. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, you the know problem I mean? is there's there's films that are doing, they're making that billion deal. You look, you look at the latest Avatar film, it made almost $3 billion dollars Oh, it made that it's, much. Wow. Yes. Yes. It's crazy. That, I mean, the number of films that do that is not many. Right. You know, it's not and It right. seems like now it's even harder for films to, to like, even with the, we were talking about the, the Marvels. It's like they're, MCU is struggling. They're really struggling with, with getting the, the numbers. Yeah. No question. I think. No question. Well, you get burnout. You know, it's, it yeah. becomes like, I think the like what, getting yeah, go ahead. Being the same old stuff. There, there, there was a big disappointment with the uh, Mission Impossible movie that just came out. It didn't do as well as they thought it would. I, I just think it's like, I think people, I don't think people know what they want, but I think they know they want some deep down, they want something else. They want yeah. something different. Yeah. That's what yeah. I would say. You yeah, know, because so. it becomes formulatic and that becomes, yeah. you know, what do they say I, on the radio? They said, uh, oh, if you've seen the, the Marvels, you're just seeing a movie that's been made 32 times. Right. Because <laughs> it's the same formula. The same formula. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and so I don't know. I'm going to stick to my guns. and I'm not giving up on it because I, I do yeah. believe that with the with with what I make, the quality of what I make, I have enough people out there who are fans of it, who are telling me this is awesome. Keep going. 
So I'm going to do it. And I'm just going to, I'm going to make these films, you know, get them done. So go for when it, is go the for Eagle landed when the Eagle is landed, when is that going to be available? And um, how's it going to be available? Is it going to be theater oh, or yeah, direct we're, TV we're, or what? I, I already, I'm in discussions with a, a chance to get it into, uh, um, 12,000 theaters in North America, which is really great. I mean, I've got a really good, and I'm working, I'm partnered with a company called 0.0 out of New York. Um, they did, uh, parts unknown with Anthony Bourdain and, uh, Oh wow! Okay, other really cool shows and stuff. So they're like top-notch people. So they're going to be leading the sales effort. So we're we're targeting when this is done, and I'm making it. I'm shooting it in motion picture quality, so it's going to be ready mm. to be in a theater. It's going to have visual effects in it. It's got all kinds of quality stuff. My idea is that this could, um, you know, probably end up on Apple, Netflix, or Amazon in the oh, end. Oh, that'd be great. So that's the plan. Are you, are you, are, that'll probably debut in 2025. That, okay, that's going to ask when do yeah, you think yeah, it's going to come we're, out. We're planning to have it in the can, ready to go to debut at TIFF, the, the Toronto Film Festival. Oh, yes. Well, Christian can go to see that. That's right, because that's where Christian's neighborhood is. Yeah, yeah. So that, 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 the TIFF thing will be in 20. Well, I'm sorry, September of 24. That would be the. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that, that's planning there. for that to be the premiere of the documentary. Gotcha. So, yeah. That's great. Well, we'll make sure too. We'll have links to your your webpage and all that stuff, so people can mm-hmm. get connected and follow follow all your stuff, sir, and support it however they can mm-hmm. uh, in our podcast notes. So make sure you guys, as you're listening to this, after you listen to it, click those links and uh, check it out. You will not be disappointed. No, no it's it's impressive. So I really do. It's yeah. Imp- yeah. Yeah. Uh, is is there anything else you want to share with us, Jeffrey? I mean, I, I, we could, we, we have a tendency, we could keep we, talking about this for hours. Could, and I mean, I know. We, we, we've gone to two parters because we get into such discussions with such interesting people because you're the, you're the guy that makes it. You want to do this. I mean, you know, we have over here, we have two authors, you know, who have written and published their own books especially Adina, because she wanted to do it, to quote Frank Sinatra, my way. I'm sorry for singing, Brian. Frank Sinatra? (laughs) 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 All right. Wake up, mouth. Anyway, uh, but that was Adina's plan. She wanted to do it her way. Yeah. And you want to do it your way. And I think that stands out in the quality of what you want to get done and yeah. how you want it done and how you want it presented. Yeah. And um, is there anything else you want to share with us, with the no, listening I mean, audience, just, as I, they say? No, I just, uh, you know, I think it's really cool what you guys are doing. I've done some research into you guys and your shows. I think it's really, really great that you uh, you were able to connect with your audience and share the stories. And the, uh, you guys all have some real passion for this. And I think it's very mm. important and appreciated. So I wanted to say that. Um, Thank you, sir. It's, it's real honor to be here and be part of this. Um, you know, I. Uh, I, I want to be hopeful that that we can figure out these big problems in front of us. It's interesting. I think, Adina, you said something earlier that struck me. It's like this, you know, Star Trek, the, the Star Trek future. And and I, I feel like we're at a crossroads. I literally feel like we're at a crossroads right now. And it's it sad because it's really beyond politics. This has to do with the choice mm-hmm. we want to make as a species. But are we going to go for Mad Max? <laughs> Are yeah. we gonna <laughs> right right you know, Good. I mean, we're at we're at that crossroads we're at the junction are we going mad max or are we going star trek you know and um my dream and my goal right now is to figure out how can we get us 
more on the path to to that Star Trek future than the Mad Max future because it feels like we're plunging headlong toward a Mad Max future right now. Mm-hmm. And I just that's we you know we have accomplished so much um, as a species to get this far, and it just would be very sad to see us throw that away. You know, so yeah, yeah. Right on. all I have is you know. Yeah, your point is well taken, and it's true. Um, we live in a global world now. It's mm-hmm. not little fiefdoms and little so on. We live in a global world, and we have to rely upon each other. And we're seeing that countries that were adversaries are now friends, mm-hmm. and we have to bring this, you know, bring this planet together. And 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 again, that was that was the hopeful dream of Star Trek, because you saw mm-hmm. one of the first times a crew made up of various nationalities absolutely and skin tones and different belief systems and so on but they were all with a certain simple process or uh, mission which is to you know strange new worlds to seek out new life and new civilization yeah. and that's what we want to do we want to we want to have a hopeful future, and I think that's exactly. what yeah. you're working on yourself. No, I think is. The reason why I'm saying this is because you you guys do reach the Star Trek community, you know, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's uh, the idea that we have. Um, I feel like we've got to start figuring out how to mobilize more of us to mm-hmm. um, to figure out how to how to get back on track to something more positive here. You know, we have to. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, we're stuck in all these silos and and arguing and you know it, it it's it's really interesting watching what social media has kind of done. It, it's where it's it's it, look. It, there's a great side of social media. It's part of why we're here. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Part of why I know mm-hmm. you guys. Right. Part of why mm-hmm. so many amazing people. I you know I I wouldn't know. Uh, you know I'm, I've been working on projects with Michael Okuda. I wouldn't know him if it weren't for social media. That's how we met. There's mm-hmm. and I go on and on and on about all these amazing affiliations I've made because of social media. That's the upside. But on the downside, you know, it's like it's it's also uh, it's created a a society where people it seems like they can't um, communicate as well. They can't uh, um, debate. They can't share different ideas. You know, we're we're stuck in these silos Mm -hmm. and the silos are getting more and more polarized. And that's it's very, very disturbing to see. You know, so I like I said, I think part of why I wanted to say this at the end is just simply because. I think that Star Trek fans have a unique perspective and I think they have a sense of hope and a sense of the future that maybe some of these other fandoms don't have. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. It sure does. Definitely. And, you know, that's where we go back to what I start off. We're, we're dreamers and we're dreaming of a better world in a better society. And if we can achieve it and we can get it, you know, we will look back. We're only on this planet for a very short period of time. And we think about, we watch Star Trek and that's set 300 years in the future. And we're just worried about the next 30 years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let alone to get to that point. So you know, let, let's let the dreamers keep us hopeful for a better future and a better society. And, and thank you, Jeffrey, for doing what you can to improve that through thank your artwork. Thank you. I appreciate that, guys. Thank you very much. And there you have it. That's, as I said, what makes a dreamer a dreamer. I I hope you've enjoyed our interview with Jeffrey Morris, that you will support him in his current and future endeavors. And if you wish to, well, it's a little late now to contribute to his Kickstarter program, but (laughs) he, he, he did tell me he did. 700 times his original expected amount. Mm. That means that there are people 
who truly believe in his project and what he wants to do and what he wants to accomplish. And I think that's the greatest compliment you can get to have people help you out one way or another. So thank you again for listening to this and all other podcasts. And if you are gentle listeners that we get together and record these programs, we hope you have been entertained and enlightened as well. This is our fifth season. In it, we hope to have many more interesting actors and content creators to interview or more of, of our usual ramblings of our favorite TV series, Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek, sorry. And uh, <laughs> look forward to. Look What'd you say? To, I have no idea. It was I have like, no you, idea. Well, it like you were coughing. Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did I? I, I thought I said Star Trek heard. Enterprise. Wait a minute here. Let's not get into it. Let's start Let's that again. Let the man finish uh, his closing. Look, uh, we look forward to more interesting content available on Trek Geek's intergalactic website. Now available in the Delta Quadrant. Try assimilating this broadcast, Borg. We dare you. And as always, I leave you with this parting words. Look to the sky. Live long and prosper. Thank you.